When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So there's a knee-jerk kind of assumption that many people make that either you put your time and energy into loving things or you're focused on loving other people. But that is abundantly false from my research that overwhelmingly the things we love are things, we love them precisely because they help us connect with other people and they strengthen our relationships with other people. That was Erin Ahuvia on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, co-author of ACT Daily Journal and an upcoming book on ACT for Burnout. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And from coastal New England, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty, The Big Book of Act Metaphors, and the upcoming Imposter No More. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We're proud to be sponsored by Praxis, the premier provider of continuing education training for mental health professionals. Right now, Praxis is offering both virtual and in-person trainings. And for the virtual trainings, they have both live and on-demand courses. Praxis is our go-to for evidence-based CE trainings, and they're especially known for their ACT trainings. Some of the best expert peer-reviewed ACT trainers offer courses with Praxis. Check out their current offerings at praxiscet.com, or you can link to them through our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and you can get a discount on live training events if you use the code OFFTHECLOCK. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries, but when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. 
You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot slash P-O-T-C. ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C. This is Yael here with Debbie to introduce an episode on things we love. I got a chance to speak to Erin Ahuvia, who wrote a book called The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. This book was named by Amazon as one of the top 20 business books of the year. And honestly, it was a really fascinating conversation and kind of comes at a good time. I think after the holidays, I'm always thinking about all the consumerism that I engaged in and you know, what that means about what kind of a life I'm living and how I'm contributing to the environment. And what was so cool about this conversation is that it really introduces a lot of nuance into how we think about the things that are an important part of our life. And Debbie, I'm just curious what thoughts were sparked for you as you listened. Oh, well, this really, this conversation really did get me thinking. And I think that's a good word for it, nuanced, because I think I kind of went into it with a little bit of a fixed point of view about things, right? And I think it's, it really is mostly concern about consumerism and this you know, materialistic, capitalistic world we live in and the environmental impact. And I think I just kind of had this idea of like, this is all bad, right? This is all a problem. And then I, as I listened, I was like, you know, it's really much more complicated that. And first of all, I really appreciated that he did have a lot of thoughtfulness around how we take care of things. You know, the, the downsides especially the environmental impact when we overconsume and when we have this kind of disposable culture. But then he also really got me thinking about how in some ways, some of the objects that are in our life are important and they enhance our quality of life and they enhance our relationships. And I was just thinking, you know, I'm not immune from that. You know, like I love my book collection and I love my morning coffee and I love having a place to live and a home for my kids. And I'm like, those things really do increase the, do I want to go, you know, over consumption? No, of course not. But I don't know. I just really appreciated how he had a lot to say about sort of ethical consumption and how these things, you know, why do we care about these things? Why do I love my book collection so, so much? You know what I mean? What's happening there? Yeah, it's amazing because he is a marketing professor and I had on also Zoe Chance, who's a marketing professor. And I think it's so amazing that, marketing professors are doing a lot of work on consumerism that is value aligned and consistent with taking care of the world that we live in. And to me, that is kind of a beautiful thing because I think we're not going to be able to get rid of our attraction to objects, Debbie, like you. I love many things that I own and, um, you know, they they do, they make me happy and make life a lot more pleasant. So we're probably not going to be able to eradicate that drive to like you know, have things in our lives and and to buy new things even. But if we can instead turn towards a hope of 
building that drive in a way that is ethical and compassionate and considerate of the world that we live in and and aligned with our value of taking care of our world, I think that seems like a really more feasible goal. And so I just really appreciated how exactly what you said, that he's a marketing professor with a real eye towards ethical consumerism, which, and, and what is so terrific. And I hope everyone listens to, to all the way to the end of the episode is that he actually offers a, a lot of really useful ideas for how to build yourself and your behaviors in ways that do align with values of caring for the environment. Yeah. And I mean, he gets pretty deep into some things like the concept of non-attachment and that kind of thing. And it's, I don't know, I just, I love that, right? It really resonates with, it really looks at this in terms of like a deep philosophical query. And so I I think it made me think about some of my own patterns in a, in a really new way, which is pretty cool for an episode that on the surface, you may not realize that it's going to have that impact. Yeah. Yeah. So what a good time to sort of start out 2023 with, with a fresh look at all the crap that we just bought for the holidays <laughs> and and an open eye towards how we want to approach life as a consumer, life as a person who has things that have meaning in throughout the year. Erin Ahuvia is a professor of marketing at the University of Michigan who studies consumers' love of products and brands and the nature of contemporary consumer culture. His research has been featured in Time, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and a number of other major publications, and he's also appeared on public radio talk shows as well as popular television shows, for example, The Oprah Winfrey Show. Most recently, he's the author of The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are, and we are here to discuss this book today. Welcome, Aaron. Well, thank you very much for having me. So I have to start by sharing that I told my three sons this morning that I was doing an interview with somebody who studies our love of things. And I asked them, what is the one thing you love most so much that you'd be heartbroken if you lost it? And my youngest told me his stuffy cheetah that he can't sleep without. Mm -hmm. And my older two sons named soccer and baseball. So this is cute and all, but let's sort of start by framing the topic because kids and adults talk about loving things all the time. And So there's this kind of broad question that you address in your book, but should we consider this to be an accurate description of our feelings, or is it just another way that we find ourselves hyperbolizing and maybe even perverting language? It depends on the person and what they're talking about. So very frequently, it is just hyperbole, but we can actually learn from that hyperbole. So when people say, um, I love your haircut, all they mean is that's a really good haircut. So very frequently, people use the word love as a figure of speech to mean high quality or excellent. And what we can learn from that is that something being perceived as high quality or excellent is one really important part of what it means to love that thing. And we also know from uh, neuroscience studies where they take a brain image of people as they think about romantic partners that they love, their children that they love, and brands or products that they love, that the part of the brain that is used for judgment, so making the sort of, is it high quality kind of assessments, is much more activated when people think about brands than it is when people think about, say, their children. So that sort of 
you know, I love this because it's great. And if it stops being great, I'm not going to love it anymore. That is a very strong part of people's love of products or objects and not such a strong part of their love of people. However, there are other times when people really do mean it. They say, like, I really do love this thing in a deeper sense. And what's happening there is that they're taking the thought processes, most of them, that they, that they use when they apply, love a person, and they're applying it to this object. And that's what I find the more interesting case. I think it's so interesting. And I have to be honest. So I have I'm a specialization in relationships, human relationships. And I never really thought about the parallels that exist in relationships between people and relationships between people and objects that they love. Do you have three boys? So you love them when they're behaving well and you're angry when they're not, but you don't hate them when they're not, <laughs> right? Because that is a difference between products and and people. Yeah. Yeah, that right, and you have this line where you talk about that we can when we anthropomorphize objects assign right. this moral responsibility, but for the most part it is a different way that we get frustrated with objects than we do with our loved ones. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. So let, let's talk a, a little bit about the evolutionary function of what we love. You, you say in your book that loving people is often evolutionarily optimal, but that's not true for loving things. Loving people who share our genes makes evolutionary sense because it leads us to help them and hence helps our genes to survive. But the things we love never share our genes. So making sacrifices for them doesn't propagate our genes. But you also conclude saying that loving things isn't a bug in being human, but rather a feature that has utility. So can you explain this paradox? Yeah, absolutely. So there's humans and other animals. Many other animals have uh, a kind of a bonding that is really very similar to love and connected to it. So humans and, and other animals uh, love other animals for really two reasons. So the first is they love their children and or sometimes their mate, depending on the species, and that's to help uh, their, their progeny survive and carry on their genes. Humans are one of the few species, and some writers I've read say the only species, um, I don't know if that's true, but one of the few species that have friends. And in English, we don't really talk about loving our friends that often, but the underlying psychological structure is the same. The closeness you feel with a close friend is, is, is a kind of love. And we love our friends because from an evolutionary perspective, there's this two-way relationship. Um, it's a lot more, two people can do a lot more than each person separately. And so, uh, it creates commitment in the relationship that allows people to help each other and cooperate with each other and do each other favors without constantly needing to keep track of exactly who owes who what and, you know, that sort of thing. So it, it increases our uh, efficiency together by working as a group. When you get to objects, right, they don't have any genes. So as you said, we're not, they're not going to carry on our genes the way our children will. And their behavior towards us isn't dependent on our feelings about them and our relationship with them, right? If we, if we give the computer the correct command, it's going to respond. And if we don't, we don't. So when we love things, in one sense, 
it's kind of a, a case of mistaken identity. We're treating them like people in ways that isn't evolutionarily optimal. But there's a huge difference between what is evolutionarily optimal and what we want as people. And we have other goals for our life. I mean, it's very straightforwardly, many of us have chosen to limit our family size. Uh, and this is not evolutionarily optimal, but we think it makes our lives happier and gives our lives more meaning to have a certain number of children, which could be zero to whatever, but is less than 12 or less than the most we're biologically capable of having. Um, and similarly, when we love activities and objects and um, times of the year or holidays or what have you, it makes our life more meaningful and more enjoyable. And that's a good thing. And if our genes don't like it, they can go to hell. Yeah, damn straight. Okay. So so you're a marketing professor and and your wife is a rabbi, so, or was a rabbi, or I'm not yeah. sure if she's practiced, is a rabbi, psychedelic rabbi. Um, so you also clearly have an attachment to spiritual life. And so there's in spiritual life, these ideals of non-attachment. And you're also a parent. So I guess I, I would imagine that you sometimes get concerned about the way that loving things can detract from loving people. So how do you personally reconcile your sort of more favorable attitude towards loving things with the concern about things detracting us from a more wholesome approach to activities and relationships? Wow, that's a fabulous question. And one I would love, there's, there's so many parts to that. Hopefully we'll have a chance to get into it in, in some of the different aspects there. So I want to uh, put a pin in what you taught. So you mentioned non-attachment. So let's promise to get back to non-attachment. But first, overall, today, I, I would say that on balance, loving things is beneficial to both our lives in general and to loving other people. So there's a knee-jerk kind of assumption that many people make that either you put your time and energy into loving things or you're focused on loving other people. But that is abundantly false from my research, that overwhelmingly the things we love are things, we love them precisely because they help us connect with other people and they strengthen our relationships with other people. So um, I have a lot of kitchen stuff that I love and serving stuff that I love. But a huge reason why I love that is because I like to throw dinner parties and they're one of my favorite ways of connecting and really communing with other people. And all of the kitchen stuff is just part of what supports the dinner parties. So it's not in conflict at all with my love of other people. There are times when things go wrong, right? There are people who get obsessed with objects in ways that do detract from their relationship with other people. Usually my reading of the research is this happens through a vicious sort of spiral. People get lonely and it used to be, this I think is an important point that I, I don't think most people think about much, but we have a, let me make an analogy. We have a need for certain kinds of nutrition from our food. And we've developed this taste of, you know, we like sweet things. And for most of our 
human evolutionary history, sweet things were also high nutrition things. And so by eating sweet things, we got calories we desperately needed and we got other kinds of nutrition and everything was good. Recently, we've been, we've split this off. And so now we have all these sweet things. They're high calorie, most of them, but they're not high nutrition and we get into trouble. Well, we had a similar kind of thing with our relationships with people. We need desperately a certain amount of close contact with other people and warm relationships with other people. And loneliness is the symptom we feel when we're not meeting our sort of psychological nutrition needs for positive relationships with other people. It used to be that another thing would come in that would also be relevant, and that was boredom. Because if you got bored, the only way you could get unbored for the most part was to do something with another person. So boredom motivated you to do things with other people. Now we've developed devices like televisions and video games that have sort of split off boredom. So just like we have junk food, we have things that will help alleviate our boredom, but won't provide the psychological nutrition that we get from social relationships. What happens then is people start to get lonely and they get bored. And it's very convenient and easy to use television or video games or stamp collecting or whatever it it happens to be, to be kind of a solo effort. And this helps alleviate the boredom, but it does nothing to alleviate the loneliness. You would think that people, when they're lonely, would become very open to social contact. But in fact, a lot of people, when they get lonely, this triggers a kind of a cycle where they want to avoid the very social contact they need to make them less lonely. And so then you get like, okay, so I get attached to these objects. They help me alleviate my boredom. And then as I do that, I get even more lonely. Um, And so I turn to the objects even more. And you get in this kind of vicious cycle. Um, I don't think that happens, but those are particular cases of individuals with significant problems. I don't think that's a diagnosis about our society as a whole. That's so interesting because it, it does seem very analogous to, you know, substance use uh, mm-hmm. cycles where, you know, you might feel an uncomfortable emotion, use a substance to alleviate it, and then, you know, feel shame and, and need more of the substance to alleviate, alleviate it. And so you end up in this kind of cycle and you're saying that can happen, but that's not the dominant way that we tend to relate to objects. That, that's more sort of when it gets into an unhealthy, non-nutritional kind of cycle. Yeah, and I'm worried, though, about the future, because right now, the objects that we use can help us with the boredom that comes from social isolation, but they don't really help us with the loneliness, so we still feel that loneliness very strongly. Um, People do, I mean, you mentioned earlier how your youngest uh, son, you asked him what he loved, and he mentioned his teddy bear. Teddy bears are perfect examples yeah. uh, because they're anthropomorphic. One of the one of the ways every time that a person loves a thing, they've their brain is in some level it's a case of mistaken identity. Their brain is treating it as if it was a person. For, for and there's different reasons for that. The simplest reason is it's a teddy bear. It kind of looks like a person. Yeah, and so the brain just outright treats it like a person. Uh, So lots of kids turn to teddy bears 
to help them when they're feeling scared or lonely or bored in any of these ways. But as researchers on these transitional objects have noted many times, as soon as mom walks into the room, down goes the teddy bear and mom is more important, right? So there's really no competition. The teddy bear is not a substitute for mom. And it's not like the teddy bear is, is making the kid not interested in his parents or his friends or anything like this. Um, we're developing much, much better teddy bears, objects that not just vaguely look like people, but are going to talk and actually be interesting to talk with, right? Right now, voice, human language uh, apps or computer programs that try to be conversation apps for people, where you talk to the computer, people find those amazingly enjoyable to talk to, even though they're pretty terrible. They work at a very simple level. And they don't say interesting things. Whereas uh, in the future, our artificial people are going to say much more interesting things and are going to be very comforting to us and are also going to be very convenient. Yeah. Because in a real relationship with a person, if you want them to listen to your boring stories, you have to listen to their boring stories. Right? But with these uh, computers or androids or what have you in the future, they're just going to be about you all the time. You know, they'll never want you to listen to some boring story uh, from them. And if, you know, so I think about junk food as an analogy here. Right. Where junk food, it's not the best food, but it is very convenient food. And people take... And it feels good as you're eating it. Yes. And it feels good as you're eating it. Absolutely. And people take convenient and pleasurable over the best all the time. So even if these sort of substitutes, technological substitutes for interpersonal relationships, even if they aren't really as good as interpersonal relationships, they'll be easy and they'll be convenient and they'll feel good. And I do worry about what the future will bring, that maybe in the future we'll have a situation that's more similar to what some people think the present is like. Yeah. I just sort of wanted to reflect back because it is true that when my son needs his little teddy, his cheetah, uh, it's usually at night. Like he can't sleep without it. But during the day, he can he can take it or leave it. So I, that that really resonates as, as quite true. The other thing I was going to say uh, regarding how technology has gotten more and more advanced and, and can naturally take the place is the example of um therapy that gets automated, right? There are these apps that, are, that folks are trying to develop and, and have developed and in, from what I understand, have shown some really good evidence that they're quite helpful in, for example, teaching cognitive behavioral therapy or even in providing a place for people to share their experiences in a, in a platform where they can receive some validation, but it's just technology, AI, artificial intelligence that's offering that validation. But there is some utility there. And the concern that I have is similar to what you, you're describing, which is something gets lost. And I think it's an important something, especially if we only have that to the exclusion of real human relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Another example, um, uh, to complement yours, there is research showing that in senior centers where you have people living, uh, there's a lot of loneliness there. And if people have dogs, there's a lot of benefits, both 
to their emotional health and also to their physical health. Like their, the benefits for the emotional health carry over to their, over to their physical health. But of course, dogs are a lot to take care of. So there have been experiments where they use these robot dogs instead of the real dogs. And they discover that people get the same health benefits and emotional benefits from having a robot dog that they do from having a real dog. And so that was the first set of headlines to come out about this. And that was very interesting. And I believe that's still true. However, uh, later research also discovered that when people have a real dog, they maintain the interest in the dog and therefore the benefits for as long as the dog's alive. But with these robot dogs, after about two or three months, people just lose interest in them. Mm. And then they lose the benefits. So there's something about the robot dogs as they are today, and I don't know what it is, that doesn't have the, the staying power of you know the real dogs. Um, nonetheless, it seems to me only a matter of time until they develop a robot dog that you really can't tell the difference. Yeah. Huh. That's so interesting. But then I guess the, it begs the question of if you could generate a robot dog or a therapist that provided all of the things without loss of interest over time or any of the other downsides, could that be sufficient? And, and would that therefore be like something to applaud instead of something to be concerned about? I would think that in terms of the dog kind of maybe I'd, I'd be like, well, it's up to each individual decide what kind of pet you want to have, even if that works for you. And for the therapist, I would think that that's probably a good thing because therapists are very expensive. If it really works, it would allow a lot of people around the world to get therapy who don't now have access to therapy. And yeah. so that would probably be a very good thing. But the therapist does have this other side, which is that you, you do form a relationship with them. You're, it's not exactly – I know people who are friends with their therapists, but officially that's not the relationship you're supposed to be creating. Uh, and, and that's why I feel like that wouldn't be such a terrible loss. But if it starts to get into the social realm and you start to replace your friends with these sorts of devices, that's way more scary and detrimental in my mind yeah. Uh, at that point. I mean, you think about like how bad it is, how bad people feel now if they lose their job because they've been replaced by a machine at work. What's it going to feel like when you find out you've lost your friend because you've been replaced by a machine after work? Yeah. The other thing that just occurs to me, and this kind of goes back to the research of Emile Durkheim, who was a French sociologist in the 1800s, and he did this really fascinating study where he was looking at predictors of suicide. And what he found was the central predictor was the more role obligations one had, the less their risk of suicide was. And so when it comes to dogs or therapists, it's almost like that need to listen to somebody's boring story or that consequence of not taking care of that dog actually matters. Like losing that might make it more convenient, might, you know, have a lot of the elements of that relationship that already exist, but it's almost like by automating something, you lose that human consequence, which actually is part of what is so beneficial about relationships that, that are the things we're taking care of. Our relationships need us, whereas computers don't. That's a really interesting insight. I will admit, I've never thought of that before. So thank you for that. And it makes total sense to me. 
Um, one of the things that people talk a lot about in this regard is that people need a sense of meaning in life. And that's part of mental health. I'll ask people about meaning in life. Uh, frequently, people aren't really clear what the question itself means. Like, what is it? What is meaning in life? What does that really mean? And what I figured out a, a way to translate that into everyday language for people is to say uh, things that are meaningful are things that feel important or that make you feel important. And they're important in some larger sense. They're not just important over the next 10 minutes, but they're you know important in your life on the longer term or to the world on longer term. So it's a sense of importance. It's like an easier word for people to understand than meaning. And I think that that's really true, that you feel a sense of meaning in your life when you are important to other people. Yes. And if you're not... If there aren't other people, if your relationships are all with machines, I don't know how that's going to play out for people. Right, right. I mean, that's a nutrient that you really can't replace with a machine. I don't think so. Not logically. So yeah. logically, you would say, um, look, that compute, you know, my dog's a robot dog. If I commit suicide, uh, it's not going to starve to death. And if it does, it doesn't matter because it's a robot dog. Right. <laughs> Uh, so that logically, there would be a big difference there. But when we deal with pets, uh, and this is something I do, I talk a lot about pets in the book because I find them really interesting, but we anthropomorphize them in ways that aren't really logical. So I have a friend who was saying, oh, I talk to my pet all the time, she said. And then she realized, she said, no, actually, I talk to myself when the pet is in the room, but I don't feel I don't feel comfortable talking to myself the same way when the pet isn't in the room. So we all say things to our pets. I do this too, that you know, the pet could never in a million years have any idea what we're talking about. Yeah. So there's already an element of unreality in those relationships. And I wonder if people might feel like, oh, I can't commit suicide because my robot dog needs me. That might work at some emotional level for them, even if logically they don't think yeah. it's possible. Yeah, huh. that's really interesting. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, so we put a pin in non-attachment. I, before I go on to my next question, I wanted to give you a chance to speak to that because I'm very curious what your thoughts are. So I have a friend, um, Mathieu Ricard, who is a very prominent expert. He is a former French uh, scientist who became a Tibetan Buddhist monk and has written a lot on meditation. And he is, in many cases, the official spokesperson for the Dalai Lama on all things meditation. So uh, a, a very expert person. And I talked to him about this. And interestingly, he wrote one of the blurbs for my book. Uh, and he talked about you know how good it is to love things. But the only thing he he was willing to talk about as like, it's great to love things was nature. So it's good. To, it's good to love nature. And I'm with him on that. I think it's great to love nature. His explanation, because I asked him about this, his explanation was that non-attachment 
isn't exactly the right word, that that's a bad translation, Mm. and that really what you're talking about are kinds of attachments that bring you suffering. So you have to look really honestly at what that attachment is doing in your life. And if it's the kind of thing that either is now or is likely to in the future bring you suffering, then you should not have that kind of attachment. Now, certain Buddhist schools tend to think, and that that includes just about everything in their mind, right? But others, not so much. And that's sort of depends on how you, you know, what, what school of Buddhism you're in, I gather, about that. But the real issue is, you know, what you're attached to and what that relationship is like, at least from a Buddhist perspective. My view is, and here I, again, not trying to contradict that, but, you know, attachments are really important parts of life. And I think for most people, emotionally healthy. Certainly we have attachments to other people, and that's fine. And what an attachment really means is it means that you've expanded your sense of identity to include this other thing. So it's become part of how you see yourself at a deeper psychological level. That's what's happening when we talk about attachments. And I have a kind of a positive look on that. Um, For the most part, as humans have evolved, we, you know, our animal predecessors went from being animals that only cared about themselves to the extent they had the conscious mind to care, right? But they only acted as if they were concerned with their own physical body to expanding to a point where they saw their children and their mate and maybe their siblings as part of themselves and cared about them in the same way to expanding again where we saw our friends and our community as part of ourselves. And then, in my view, we now have the potential to expand again. So we see much of the world as an extension or part of ourselves and hopefully care about it in the same way that we care about ourselves. So I I see that as a largely positive thing. And I will end with one little note, which is I'm very concerned about global warming, as I think many people are. And there are two really good approaches to reducing consumption, which will help with global warming and other kinds of ecological issues. And one is this sort of generalized non-attachment. And that says, like, just don't care about things. Don't own things. You know, just, just say no kind of approach. And that works, you know, I think if you're in a Buddhist monastery, that's going to be the approach that you'll probably be living with. And that works for some people. But I really don't think that works for most people. And what the data shows is that the people who are really attached to the things that they actually own, keep those things for longer and repair them and don't buy new things and don't want to replace them because they love the thing they have. They don't feel the need to replace it. The people who are the consumption machines are not actually people who love stuff. They're people who have unrealistic expectations about what stuff is going to do for them, how it's going to transform their identity and transform their lives. Their greatest sense of pleasure from the things they own, uh, this is from studies from Marsha Richens, who does brilliant work on this, occurs just before they buy it, when they have this fantasy about how great it's going to be. And then the minute they own it, they like it less and less the longer they have it, which is why they constantly want to replace it 
with something new. So if you can get those people to actually own, you know, fewer things, but own things and love the things that they actually have, as opposed to craving a fantasy about things they don't have, that's another way to to create a fulfilling life kind of surrounded by things you love that's a satisfying life. And that's also a much more sustainable way of life. I love that suggestion from somebody who's in marketing because I, I think that's brilliant. So I, I have a, okay, I have a two-pronged question. So one is that you explain in the book that objectification is the opposite of love. So I wanted to give you a chance yeah. to speak to that. But then related to what you just said and, and related to objectification, how do you get people who are more materialistic to love things more deeply? That's a really interesting problem and one that I, I want to put more research into in the future. I will say for the time being, um, I have some hypotheses uh, about that. One comes from a, a psychologist friend of mine and, and wonderful author, Robert Diener. Uh, uh, and yeah, he studies happiness. He studies happiness. And we were discussing this and he said, well, what if you took the gratitude exercise and what if you were to say your coffee maker, use it every day? What if you actually thanked your coffee maker? First, you got to give it a name because oh, we know that. naming things makes people love them more. So give it a name and then th- thank you, John, the coffee maker, <laughs> for this fine cup of coffee you have provided me this day. I think I, I strongly suspect that that would make you love your coffee maker more and be less inclined to replace it with some other coffee maker because it's John the coffee maker and he would, you just can't do that to John. Uh, So that's one approach. Another approach is to recognize that there are two sort of paths to love. And this is true in romantic love where sometimes people have a love at first sight or um, more realistically love at early relationship, you know, early in the relationship kind of thing. And, other times, though, there's just a totally different trajectory where they know people know each other for a long time and the relationship slowly builds. And then at some point, it goes from a friendship to a romantic relationship. And then the love continues to sort of grow over time. Both of those trajectories in human relationships can yield extremely rewarding, positive love relationships. Both of those are legitimate. Similarly, you have the same pattern when people love things. There are some things that you have sort of love at first sight or like you hear a song for the first time and you fall in love with it. Other things, though, grow on you over time. But they'll only grow on you over time under certain conditions. First is you have to keep trying them. Uh, They say, I've heard it said, that if you want your child to learn to love a new food, you have to have them taste it 14 times. I don't know if that number's right, but the basic idea is they have to keep at it and and keep trying. And that's also true with many of the things we love. So if you, I've made a hobby of learning to like new musical styles that I wasn't formerly interested in. And the way that I do this is I just listen to them a bunch and I ask myself this question. What's good about this? What's enjoyable about this? For the people who like this, what do I think they might be liking about this? And that, that 
I think is another way with people who are materialists um, who like buy stuff and hate it the minute they buy it, you know, to stop and say, no, hold on a minute, you know, don't just throw it in your closet, actually use this and build up some experience with it and relate to it and think about what's good. And you can come to love things. And I'll, I'll say one last closing thing on this, which is people often discount the ability of learning to love things because they think that when they love things, it's always love at first sight. But what's happening is they're just forgetting about the process of learning to love the things that they do love. So if you have, you know, your music taste now, you think, oh, I didn't have to learn to love this music that I like now. Oh, you absolutely did. It took you years to learn to love that music. You just weren't really aware of the process that was happening. It was playing on the radio. Your friends were playing it around you. You were talking to your friends. They were telling you what they liked about it. You were talking about the music to them. You heard it again and again. So the things that we love now, we learned to love all of those things. And we can learn to love new things. I love that. That I love how parallel some of the ways that you understand our relationship to objects are to our relationships with people, because that's true in relationships, too. We often think, you know, my best friend, they're just my best friend. We just click. We're exactly the same. But actually, you know, if you really look back, it's often the case that it took you a while to, you know, there's research that suggests that you have to spend like 90 hours with somebody before you really develop a close friendship it's a process, but we are so immersed in the outcome that we forget about the process. Absolutely. And that's not to deny that there are some things that are going to be better fit for some people than others in, in all sorts of areas. In the same way that, you know, there are some people you can spend 90 hours with them and you're not going to become friends with them <laughs> necessarily. But you really, it is a combination of both things. Yeah. And if you insist that you know, you're only going to be friends with someone who you click with on in the first half hour, you're really closing yourself off. Right. Which is good advice for the dating sphere too. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess related to that, and this is sort of in the opposite direction for people who have a hard time letting go of objects that are cluttering their house. Can you talk through your advice for that? Right. So if you are, I'll give the example for myself, like my youngest is now six. And so we're, you know, they've all, my three boys have been through certain outfits and it does not make sense to hold on to them. There's no grandchild that would want to wear something that's been through three boys, but it's so hard to let go because I'm attached to those objects. They represent my kids early childhood and, you know, those early moments of mothering and, and it makes sense to get rid of them and free up space for all the new junk that clutters up my house. So what's your advice for that? A couple of things here. One is absence makes the heart grow disinterested. <laughs> so in some cases, if you take the stuff and you just like put it in the attic and you don't see it for a while, then when you come back to it in a year, you look at it and you're like, oh, I can get rid of this now. So there's that sort of emotional connection that comes through frequent interaction. And that's to, 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 to turn that on its side, you know, around for just a second. A lot of the times, one of the, one of the most surprising findings from my work, when I ask people about what they love and why they love it, it turns out that one of the things that predicts how much people will love something is just how much contact they have with it. 
and the things that, as long as it's positive contact, if it's a, if you have a lot of contact with something and it's annoying, you're not going to love that. But if you have positive contact with something and it's just in your life because it's you know it's around you all the time, people develop affections for those. And the flip side of that is if you take it out of your life and you don't see it and you throw it in the basement for a couple of years, you can become less emotionally attached to that. Now, this also relates to, to hoarding. At first, I assumed that hoarding had really nothing to do with the kind of love I was studying. And I will admit that was largely unscientific. I, I, I think the kind of love that I study is usually a positive thing most of the time. And hoarding is a very negative thing. And I didn't really want to see them as being very connected to each other. So I you know, built up this belief. But then as I looked more into the research on hoarding, I had to go with what the data said. And there clearly is a similarity. And there's two things that happen that are similar. One is when you love something, you've changed your, you've included it in your identity. You're thinking about it as if it was an extension or a part of your own identity. And when hoarders do this with all kinds of things as well. Uh, and that's part of the reason it's very hard to let go of something if you think it's part of your identity. So you have to come to rethink it. so it's not part of your identity if you're going to get rid of it in some way. Uh, the other part that's really surprising was to me was that hoarders tend to anthropomorphize these objects. So part of the reason that, you know, they buy the item in the supermarket to begin with is they'll be, oh, I don't really need this can of tuna, but it's the last can of tuna on the shelf. Everything else has been sold. It must be so lonely sitting there on the shelf by itself. I'll take it home and make it uh, comfortable in my home. And so they buy it and bring it home and they don't want to eat it um, because they don't really eat tuna and don't use it that much. Uh, and then it sits on their shelf, but they, they anthropomorphize it. They see it as a person and they feel like it would be terrible to it, like they'd be doing harm to it if they were to you know, get rid of it in some way. And that also is a similar thing when, when we love things. Um, so I don't have a full solution to the anthropomorphization part, uh, but I will say if you're trying to get rid of things, realize that they're not actually people. That's, you know, that, that, that might be uh, uh, another hint in that direction, too. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because that doesn't, you talk about Marie Kondo in your book, but it's almost the opposite of what she does, right? She sort of says thank you and says goodbye as if it's, uh, you know, a, a personified object, but it's engaging it with that object in, in sort of like a, a goodbye ritual. Yeah. No, I actually think her work is brilliant um, on that. The, 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 the goodbye rituals she comes up with, um, the example that's also, I don't know if this is from her or from other people that I've heard, is to take a photograph of the object, especially a digital photograph, so the photograph doesn't have to take up any room, take a digital photograph and have a, a portfolio of things I love that are here in my digital, so I keep them in the digital form and release them to someone else who'll use it better. Um, I if you can, it would be helpful to not to sort of de-anthropomorphize the objects, but that might not always be that possible for people because anthropomorphism is a very unconscious mechanism. It's not a con consciously you already know it's not a person. Right. <laughs> so you've got to work with it in this other way. And what Marie Kondo talks about of saying like, oh, I'm going to let it go. It does not bring me joy. It doesn't spark joy here. Um, I'll keep 
my relationship to it through the photograph, but I'll let it go to a place where it will be happier because it will find a person and, you know, have this happier existence with its new owner. I think that's very smart. Yeah. Oh, I love that. There, there's so much in your book that we're not going to have time to get to, but I, I just, again, I love the parallels between human relationships and, and relationships with objects because you talk about, maybe we can just touch on this here, that the more anxious people are about their interpersonal relationships, the more likely they are to form strong relationships with brands. So in other words, attachment styles with people that we have with people translate to our attachment style with objects. That, that's so fascinating. Can you speak a little bit to that finding? There's a, it's one of a whole class of findings that I call carryover effects. So things that, you know, we evolved because they helped us in our relationships with people or they worked in our relationships with people. And then they sort of carry over to relationships with objects. Now, when this work started and people began to realize this connection that people who are insecure in their relationships with people tend to love brands, be more likely to love a brand. The initial thought was, oh, they're using the brand as a substitute, right? They can't get the human relationship, so they have this relationship with the brand instead. Later research, however, showed that, no, they're trying to use the brand as a way of connecting to other people. So they only form this kind of relationship with brands if the brand is something that's used socially if it's the kind of thing that other people might be impressed with them if they had this brand. For brands that they use by themselves, you know, for the furnace in their home, they don't, they don't feel any different about the furnace in their basement. Uh, so it, it really only works or only occurs if they think that the brand is going to be a way of connecting to other people. So it's just, in the end, another example of how people try, you know, when we love objects, it's because we think they're going to help us in our relationships with other people, not substitute for our relationships with other people. The problem here is that brands don't really help us in our relationships with other people most of the time. It's, a, it's misdiagnosing the issue. And so while the intention may be good, it's just not an effective way of improving in your social relationships. Yeah. So so a lot of the time when we love objects, it is to nurture connection to others. But where does love of nature fit into that? Is that I, separate or is that does that have a way to connect us? I think it's a little separate and it's also a way to connect us. So research on love of nature, contrary to the stereotype, the stereotype of a person connecting to nature is the lone backpacker in the <laughs> wilderness, trekking through the wilderness kind of thing. Um, but when people yeah, talk it's like about Walden, Walden Pond, Walden Pond, when people talk about this, the events in their life where they have connected to nature, overwhelmingly they are experiences they had with other people, and they created the deeper connection to nature simultaneously with creating a deeper connection to the people they were with. So that is very typical of the objects that we love, that they create, we create a deeper connection with them as part of, they're like, a, if, if it's you and your friend together trekking through nature, nature becomes like a 
third member of the relationship in a positive way. So that part is similar. However, I do sometimes wonder about nature, and maybe it's a little bit different. And part of the reason is that people tend to be much more altruistic towards nature than they are towards other objects. So I mentioned earlier in the interview how most of the time with the objects, when people love an object or a brand, they are a little bit altruistic. For example, people who love brands, if someone else attacks the brand online, they'll take their own precious time, which is in short supply, and they'll go online and they'll write a rebuttal to, you know, no, our brand is really good for this reason. Um, and that's a kind of altruism towards the brand. They're giving up their time, you know, in service to the brand. So people can be a little bit altruistic, but not nearly the way we are with other people. Uh, it's much stronger with other people. And we're much more likely if a brand just starts putting out low quality products. At first, the same way with we would with a person, we make excuses for the brand, just as we make excuses for ourselves when we do something that isn't so good. However, if you do that long enough as a brand, even your most loving and loyal consumers will decide after a while that no, this this just isn't very good. And people, uh, we're, we're much more forgiving of other people that we love than we are of, in general of products and brands. That said, with nature, people exhibit much more altruism than they do with other kinds of physical objects. So if I ask people, you know, you say you love your car. What if the only way you could drive your car was you knew you were damaging it? But if you set your car up in a special storage place and never drove it, it would stay in good health forever. It would not be damaged. They say, no, of course I'm going to drive my car. The purpose of the car is for me to drive my car, right? And yes, I know eventually I'm going to have to get a new one, but that's what my car is for. But people who love nature, if you say the only really way to protect this natural area is for no one to go in it, you will not, as a backpacker, you will not be able to access this area. Enormous numbers of people say that's fine, right? I would rather have that part of nature be something I never get to have contact with, yet just know that it's okay. Um my 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 I, one of the longest sort of running uh not it's not a running joke but like one of these comments from my wife you know in relationships you'll often have someone will have a, a comment that they make repeatedly and it becomes kind of an in thing um every time she passes an open plot of land as we're driving along that's got a billboard in it that says for sale she always says oh, I wish I had money to just buy that plot of land and just let it sit there without doing anything with it. Right? Um, and people, people feel that way about nature. And that's a kind of an altruism. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that for whatever reason, people might see nature as more human than we see other kinds of things. And that would certainly go along with religions from you know, early people where they tend overwhelmingly to be animistic and they see, like they see the mountain as having a spirit and the tree, each tree has a spirit. Right? And so I think it may be from a strong tendency to anthropomorphize nature. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. So we're, we're just about out of time. And 
I'd love maybe to leave you with this final question, which is to ask you for suggestions of ways to optimize our love of things. So what can we do so that we find that balance? Like don't become too materialistic, but instead use our things to live in more value aligned ways. One thing, okay, advice number one, look at the things that are in your life and think about ways that they connect you to other people. Very frequently in my research, I'll interview people and just ask them, is there anything that you love and what is it? And often I'll be in their home with them and they'll start talking about the things in the home. And when they're done with the interview, they'll say, you know, I just never realized how many of the things I love are things that sort of connect me to other people. So step one is making that realization. And then step two is, all right, if that's why I love this thing, can it do that better? You know, is there a way that I can use it more effectively to connect with other people? And do I really need all these things? If the purpose of this is really connecting with other people, you know, do I need so many versions of, of the same thing? So that would be one way to form a deeper relationship. Another way that I would say is to try to get creatively involved with things. So, for example, if you, let's say you love clothing, one approach might be to say, oh, I spent a lot of money on clothing. Maybe I should just forget about clothing and you know do something else. But for a lot of people, that feels very painful because they really love clothing and they don't want to forget about clothing. So maybe the solution is to try and love that thing more by having a more creative engagement with it. So join a group. Now it's going to bond you to other people. Join a group of people who design and make their own clothing. And then through that creative process, you'll bond with these other people and you will come, I guarantee you, to love clothing more than you did at the beginning. But instead of going shopping and coming home with four outfits that you don't end up wearing because they were mostly on sale, it'll probably take you a year by the time you start designing what the clothes should look like and learning the skills necessary to sew those clothing and, and putting them together. It might take you a year to make, you know, one item of clothing, but you'll really love that thing. It'll mean something to you mm -hmm. and it'll, your pocketbook will thank you. You know, if you can make that your connection. I love that suggestion. I love those suggestions. So Thank you, Erin, for joining me today. This was so much fun. People should pick up the things we love, how our passions connect us and make us who we are. Where else can people find you? Find out more about you and your work, Erin? Um, I've got a website called thethingswelove.com. So head on over to thethingswelove.com. And while you're there, uh, there's a, on the homepage, there's a link you can click on to sign up for my blog. I have a blog with Psychology Today. And it's called Peace, Love, and Happiness and Marketing. <laughs> and it's just a very occasional blog where I send out interesting things, um, sometimes from my own research, sometimes from other people, things I think are either intellectually interesting or sometimes just funny and entertaining. Uh, and I'd love to have people sign up for that as a way of keeping in touch. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And, and I'll be in touch with you, too. <laughs> Great, Yael. This was a wonderful opportunity, and I really appreciate it.
Hey, Psychologist Off The Clock listeners, I'm going to guess that if you are listening to this episode that you love to geek out about books in psychology. So if you are a fellow book nerd like Yale and I, and all of the people around you are tired of you talking about books, then you can join us once a month to really take a deep dive into the the books that we're going to be reading together. So if you want to join us, all you have to do is send an email with the subject heading RSVP to offtheclockpsych at gmail.com and we'll send you information for upcoming meetings of the book club. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media and purchase swag from our merch store by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold and our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.